This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, August the 8th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Forgot to turn off the AC. Let's hit the horns and go. These things need to be turned off before the show. It's almost like we're live TV or something. Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig will be here. We'll take a look at a couple of stories that made headlines over the weekend, including going back in time to Friday to take a look at the temporary ban on handgun imports put in place by the federal government. You'll also hear from workplace accessibility specialist Kelly Braun Johnson. She'll explain how employers can make team building activities inclusive and accessible to staff members. Canada's largest telecom companies are in a race to provide the highest speed internet possible. Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV will plug you in with details on that one. Jim Crisco will be here. He'll tell you all about a series of new inclusive playgrounds in Calgary. And Amy Manti, our film reviewer will share her thoughts on The Gray Man, starring Ryan Gosling. Oof, things are going to get handsome at the end of this hour. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day, and it's looking at a couple of the heat warnings and wildfires going on around the country. Environment Canada has extended heat warnings in a number of provinces. Rob Westgate has more. The warning from the National Weather Agency covers broad regions of southern Ontario, Nova Scotia, Alberta, and B.C. Environment Canada says maximum temperatures are expected to reach or surpass 30 degrees Celsius and then hit the low 40s when combined with humidity. Cooler temperatures are forecast to return Monday night or Tuesday for most regions. However, the scorching is expected to return to parts of Alberta on Wednesday. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. The BC Wildfire Service says it is using a combination of tools to control a blaze on the outskirts of the southern Okanagan region. Information officer Mikhail Elsie has said controlled burns were scheduled yesterday in a bid to rein in a large blaze that has been burning for more than a week. The service is also using a sprinkler system to protect properties. The crews are making very good progress um, on the on the flanks that we're working, um, and we uh, the next. 24 hour, 24 to 48 hours are going to be is a good window for us to make um, to make ground on this fire. The nearly 60 square kilometer wildfire is located about 21 kilometers southwest of Penticton. Parts of central Newfoundland have been under a state of emergency for a couple of days now due to a forest fire. The emergency was declared on Saturday night and it urges residents to be ready to respond if the situation deteriorates further. The latest word from the province was there is no immediate threat to homes in the affected area. Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture Minister Derek Bragg says there's a lot of smoke in the area between Gander and Grand Falls. We have a stronger southwest wind predicted for today, uh, which is going to cause us some major concern. Uh, we played the fact yesterday, there's a lot of, lot of noise. I don't want to panic anyone, but there's a lot of dry timber between where we are with our fire break and where we are with lakes and that sort of thing. The fire has been burning for close to two weeks and has disrupted transportation and travel across the region due to road closures. And then looking south of the border, U.S. President Joe Biden will travel to Kentucky today to assess damage caused by significant flooding. Sagar McGanny has that story. It'll be the president's second trip to Kentucky. His first came in December after tornadoes killed more than six dozen people. This time he'll see destruction from the worst flooding in state history with more than three dozen dead. 
The president and first lady head there today from Delaware and will meet with families. He's expanded federal disaster aid to Kentucky, ensuring the federal government will cover the full costs of removing debris and taking other emergency measures. Sagar Magani, Washington. Let's come back north of the border for some analysis on COVID relief benefits that the federal government put out. Economists say the rollout of the COVID relief benefits at the start of the pandemic allowed vulnerable Canadians to stay healthy while maintaining an income. But looking back, support for businesses were excessive. Here once again is Rob Westgate. Two and a half years since the start of the pandemic, economists are analyzing the success of the various COVID-19 relief benefits that were rolled out. City of New York University economics professor Miles Corrick has studied the programs and says while the Canada Emergency Response Benefit was terribly successful, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy was a huge failure. Ultimately, economists have criticized the wage subsidy program for not being targeted enough, leading to too many businesses accessing it. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you, should there be a minimum age to join a social media platform? 98% of you said yes, and 2% of you said no. Today's daily poll at AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'm going to give you the news story before I read you the question. Organizers of the Montreal Pride Festival cancelled Sunday's parade, citing a lack of security staff for the parade route. The organizers said they were short about 80 people, not enough to keep the parade route safe. Events taking place at Esplanade Parc Olympique from 2 p.m., including the closing show with... uh, Polito Vitar went on as planned. Simon Gamache, executive director of Montreal Pride, said that every event of the week, uh, of the week-long celebration, had a very narrow margin of available volunteers. So, it prompted this question in my mind this morning. At AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, should major festivals and parades have to offer financial compensation to its volunteers? Yes, only if there's paid admission, or no, Now, I understand some of you may uh, bounce the ball at me today and say, Dave, the point of volunteering is you do it for free. You do it for gratis Libra. But when we're talking about canceling major parades and major events because of a lack of volunteers, does it maybe imply that there should be some sort of compensation involved? And that's why I put the second option in here. Sometimes I do it just so I have the right answer. And that's only if there's paid admission because so many of the Pride Montreal events or Pride events generally are free admission. Anybody can show up. Anybody can be part of it. So I understand perhaps why volunteering there makes sense, that there's less of a transactional nature to it. But when we're talking about major music festivals that are relying on volunteers, well, now we're walking into some problematic territory. If you're charging people $80 or $90 or $100 to get in the door and charging them $13 or $14 for a hamburger or a beer – How are you supposed to justify saying, well, half of our staff on site or three quarters of our staff on site are volunteers? That doesn't make sense to me. You're you're oftentimes taking some money from government agencies and getting benefit from the taxpayer using volunteers and still applying the profit principle. Things behind a paywall, that's something else entirely. Let's bring in Grace Scottfield for her thoughts on this one. Grace, what do you think about the idea of major events or parades offering some financial compensation to volunteers? I think that, you know, if you're going to offer any kind of compensation, maybe work with the vendors or somebody else you're partnering with at the event and providing coupons or free meals or something. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial, but providing something that will make sure you have the right amount of volunteers to 
keep running your event is important. Or maybe paying a skeleton crew of people so that you can keep the event going mm-hmm. and then having the rest be volunteers and changing the roles up a little bit that way. But providing something for bigger events, like you mentioned, to make sure that they can still happen as they're supposed to with the amount of people they're supposed to and at the same time that they're supposed to is really important. So yeah, maybe using some sort of compensation with um, you know, the rest of your your vendors or the other volunteers. I think later this week we're going to talk a little bit about the Woodstock 99 documentary that popped up on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that struck me after I binged through it like a monster yesterday was the way in which a lot of security was volunteer-based. And after watching that, it really makes me think maybe security is one of these positions where we shouldn't be counting on volunteers to be security guards. Maybe we should have equipped, trained people who know how to do this properly rather than just like big dudes in t-shirts or sorry i should also say like women can be security guards too but you know people in t-shirts a t-shirt doesn't necessarily qualify you to be security so that was the big concern here with montreal pride yesterday that they were 80 volunteers short and they were security volunteers that's that's asking a lot of volunteers to be saying it's your job to protect this route from danger so i think there's definitely something to this concept let's bring in corinne van dusen who's filling in for mike today corinne welcome back lovely to have you what do you think about this question about offering some financial compensation to volunteers at major events Um, I think when it comes to security, you should definitely be paid for that. (laughs) Uh, And it, it, Pride Parade, like, it's usually, as you said, there's lots of events. So it's not just a parade that happens, right? So um, when you're working the parade, should you get paid or should you do what uh, Grace suggested and have other things as a volunteer? But it always, yeah, it kind of boggles my mind that they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Here's some training. You can do security. Yeah, and whatever like that. Here's here's a flash. Here's a flashlight and a radio. You're now security. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think well, it's kind of doesn't answer the question, but I think all security should be paid <laughs> if there is an admission. Yes, uh, everyone should get paid and there should be compensation of some sort. Uh, if it's a, a parade or like a, a street festival and they have uh, people there. Yeah. With some of these music festivals, especially the bigger ones, oftentimes what it is, it's you volunteer one day and then get a free pass for the next day, which certainly is a tangible financial value. There's like no, there's no doubt about that. So I definitely understand. And and that's where I get to thinking about what's the tangible value of volunteering at a parade. What do I get precisely for doing this? And again, I know that's the wrong attitude to have around volunteering, that volunteering is supposed to be giving back to the community. There's supposed to be something inherent about community building involved in it. But I do think when we're talking about very serious, stressful positions, yeah, well, what, like, what am I getting for this? Do I just get a sunburn? Because that's not necessarily enough to get me out here to be security. <laughs> hey, Corinne, we're so glad to have you on board today. Thank you for uh, filling in for Mike. I think we have you uh, pretty much the majority of the week, right? Oh, we, I'm here oh, all yeah, week. yeah, all right. <laughs> it's the big Corinne week on Now with Dave Brown. So, Corinne, we'll talk to you again in a couple minutes for the uh, big business story of the day. Sounds good. That's Corinne Van Dusen. In the meantime, I want you to vote on the poll at AMI-audio on Twitter or Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Uh, By the way, we're a little short-staffed today. I have not posted the poll on Twitter yet, so you might have to wait till 11 a.m. Eastern time before you can uh, log in and vote on that poll. But Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, you can vote right now. Or, Or if you're really, like, jonesing to answer the question, send us an email. Feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or find us by giving us a phone call. Give us a ring-a-ding-ding. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. 
Let's go back to Grace Scofield. Grace has the national weather updates. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's a few showers ending this afternoon, then clearing, with a high of 25 degrees. In Halifax, it's becoming cloudy this morning, with a 30% chance of showers early this afternoon, and a high of 24 degrees. Over in Montreal, some periods of rain today, with a high of 18 degrees. In Ottawa, it's cloudy with a 40% chance of showers early this morning and a few showers beginning early this morning with a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon and a high of 22 degrees. Over in Toronto, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 30 degrees. It is unbelievably hot it's out there. It's going to be very warm today and I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> in Thunder Bay, a mix of sun and cloud with a 60% chance of showers this morning and a high of 23 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, a mix of sun and cloud today that'll clear up near noon with a high of 29 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud later this morning with a high of 31 degrees. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon and a high of 30 degrees. Over in Edmonton, Alberta, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers early this morning, becoming sunny this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm early this morning as well, with a high of 24 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, a mix of sun and cloud with a 60% chance of showers this morning and a risk of a thunderstorm this morning as well, with a high of 20 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny with a high of 25 degrees. And in Victoria, BC, it's sunny with a high of 27 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up after the break, Michelle McQuig will be here. We'll discuss what's making news, including the verdict coming down in the weekend in the Amanda Todd harassment trial. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in our friend from the Canadian press, Michelle McQuig. Michelle is the weekend news editor at CP. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, let's go all the way back to Friday when the federal government announced a temporary handgun import ban. I think that's kind of self-explanatory, Michelle, but take me a bit deeper. What does this mean precisely? It is, but it's also kind of a, it is a bit of a surprise move. So, yeah, it, it bears unpacking a little bit. So, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, uh, there has been an effort to get some gun control legislation on the books, and one of that measures included in there would be a ban of importing handguns. That bill has not yet passed. It did not pass before the summer. It's going to debate will resume whenever the House resumes. So this is a bit of a workaround uh, that Melanie Jolie and Marco Mendicino, the uh, foreign affairs minister and the immigration minister, respectively, came up with. 
what's going to happen is Melanie Jolie said that she has the authority to decide what can come in and out of the country. So what they've done together is come up with an, uh, a measure that would start limiting gun, excuse me, handgun imports. It would sort of mirror the legislation and they would do that through a regulatory measure. That measure is not coming into place for two weeks. And until it does, and until that allows for certain handguns to come in under the terms of the rules that they've set out, there's a complete freeze. So as of right now, there will be no more handguns imported into Canada. And they're hoping to keep this measure in place until there is a formal law in the books. I think you answered it right there, Michelle. But yeah, walk me through the timeline one more time. Give me a reminder on the implementation and just how temporary temporary is. Well, a lot of that is contingent on how long it takes for a law to pass. And right. We all know that debating in the House of Commons and then it has to go to the Senate. There's a whole process there. So we're, we're, I think we're talking at least a few months. But it essentially... There's a freeze on gun handgun imports as of now. That's in effect for two weeks until the regulatory measure takes effect. At that point, certain handguns will be allowed. There's you know, all kinds of nitty-gritty to get into there. Um, but effectively, the handgun ban, the import on a handgun ban, is, uh, is effectively starting to take shape right now. Mm. It's definitely an interesting one and definitely that workaround. I think, again, because it was sort of a Friday news dump, a lot of reaction hasn't fully poured in yet. I think over the course of the next day or two, there's going to be some people at some barbecues uh, around the country, some politicians at barbecues voicing their concerns about the way in which this was implemented. We've already had a little bit of reaction. Uh, The Conservatives, uh, very predictable in many senses, and that the NDP is saying that they should have done this kind of thing sooner. The impetus for this was uh, the piece of context is that when they announced plans for a a ban on importing handguns, the imports began to really spike. Uh, There was a a a period of a few months there when imports were up 52% from Mm -hmm. where they were the year Mm -hmm. before. Uh, So the NDP is saying, well, the government should have anticipated this and acted sooner. The Conservatives are saying, you're not targeting the right things. You should be going after illegal handguns. The imported handguns are not the source of gun crime. Um, But uh, Police Souviens, which is a group of uh, advocates largely based on the École Polytechnique, shooting is very happy with this. Uh, And a lot of gun control advocates are saying this is a really effective maneuver that will start to limit the number of imported handguns here. Mm. Michelle, let's go over to British Columbia, where a jury found a Dutch man, Aidan Coben, accused of harassing British Columbian teen Amanda Todd via online threats, guilty of all charges he faced in connection with the case. Michelle, I know this story is a difficult one, but what were some of the specifics of this case? It is a very difficult one. Uh, this was a case of a, a girl, a teenage girl from Port Coquitlam. She began being harassed by an online tormentor when she was about 12 years old. This went on for quite some time. Aidan Coban, we can now disclose, uh, had a long history of online harassment against teenage girls and gay men, primarily. He's a Dutch national, so this was all happening in the Netherlands. Uh, He has been convicted of numerous similar cases in the Netherlands, but he was extradited here to face charges in the Amanda Todd case. Amanda Todd, after undergoing years of this kind of harassment, ultimately died by suicide when she was 15. And she posted a video outlining her experience. And this this is why her name has a lot of recognition now in this country, because she's become really synonymous with an issue. And the video she posted and her sharing of her experience has been widely credited with really sort of raising the profile of this issue and then moving discussions of it into the mainstream. So um, he was extradited here to face charges in relation to her case. Now, he's not accused of causing her death. There were no charges related to that. It was all to do with the online harassment that she suffered. So he was charged with things like harassment and, and, excuse me, extortion. And uh, 
making and distributing child pornography because it was a sextortion case. Uh, so those were the five charges he was facing. There was a nine-week trial. Uh, jury went out on Friday, and we really weren't sure how long it was going to take. But they came back with their verdict about a day later. And like you said, guilty on all charges. What kind of reaction has come in since the verdict? Uh, this is being hailed as justice in a lot of ways. Um, Hina Alam, my coworker who covered the uh, the verdict on Saturday, got an interview with Carol Todd, who was Amanda Todd's mother. She's become a, a very vocal advocate, not only for her daughter's memory, but for the issue that her daughter's now become synonymous with in a lot of ways. Uh, so she feels that this offers a lot of closure. That there's a lot of relief and, and a sense that justice was served by this mm. verdict. Michelle, let's go from the very serious to the somewhat surreal. We'll finish with quite the back and forth in Alberta about the future of Athabasca University. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, have to con- I have to confess, Michelle, this one wasn't on my radar. I read a couple stories on the weekend, and now I'm deeply fascinated. But what's an, it, issue, what's an issue here with Athabasca University? It is one of those stories. Kind of get, I, I, I Similarly, I was editing a story we had on the weekend from my colleague Dean Bennett out in Edmonton. The back and forth here essentially is that the Alberta government wants more staff at Athabasca University to be based in Athabasca, even though it's an online university. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. Maybe some of you take courses there. It's 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 a strictly online school that offers courses that people can take all across the country. And uh, it was initially created to sort of spur some rural development. The province is saying that we need to have more people living back in Athabasca to help maintain that rural development and, and, and help support the town. The town itself has been pushing for some of this. And the school is saying, uh, that's not viable. That's going to undercut what we do. You can't be asking 500 of our employees at the most to relocate just to try and further this initiative. They call the government's uh requests self-defeating. So it sounds like just a back and forth kind of fight, but there are pretty high stakes here. The government is is putting its foot down and saying, if you don't do this, if you don't start to come up with a plan to make this happening, we're going to withdraw your funding, which is about $3.4 million. That represents a quarter of their revenue, basically. And the school has come right out and said, if that happens, if we lose this government funding, we're done. We can't do this anymore. Yeah, I, I, as I was reading more about Athabasca University, 40,000 active students right now for Athabasca University. So uh, you just answered it there. But if, if, this does, if, if they can't figure out a deal here, we're talking about 40,000 students potentially being left in the lurch. Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and of course, there's the welfare of the town itself uh, at play. So there's, the, the stakes are very, very high for this. And uh, what's, <laughs> what makes this story a little more colorful, I think, is the fact that uh, no parties on either side of the table are pulling their punches, and there's there some pretty scrappy comments coming back and forth. Uh, for instance, the the president of Athabasca University, um, Peter Scott, has been pushing back on the government, and the government has been saying that you know this this threat we have to withdraw our funding does not constitute an ultimatum, and Peter Scott said to my colleague, I have to look up what an ultimatum means in the dictionary. Like it's <laughs> it's that kind of story, right? They're, they're uh, no one's trying to play nice here. And I, I suspect it's because the stakes are so high. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Michelle, thank you for running through these stories with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great week. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. And you can find Michelle on the show again on Friday as part of our weekly news panel. Coming up next, workplace accessibility specialist Kelly Braun Johnson will explain how employers can make team building activities more inclusive and accessible to all staff members. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. 
North American stock markets finished the week last Friday on a mixed note as economists and investors balanced the fears of a recession with the astonishingly hot U.S. jobs numbers. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 43 points to close at 19,620. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 77 points, hitting 32,803 at close. However, the Nasdaq slipped 63 points, down to 12,658. Japan's Nikkei this morning finished up 73 points at 28,249. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong ahead of closing, it was down over 115 points. Uniform members from across Canada are gathering in Toronto this week to elect the union's next leader, and Japanese technology giant SoftBank Group is reporting $23 billion in losses for the April to June quarter. As for the loonie, it's trading this morning at 77.54 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. A big part of workplace culture actually has nothing to do with work. Team building in the office and out of the office is something that managers and executives utilize to try and improve the vibe of employees. Here's the thing. Can team building actually exclude people? Can it actually make the vibes worse? Kelly Braun Johnson is a workplace accessibility specialist and the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Great to chat with you once again. Hi, good morning. So before we get into some of the mistakes that companies make in putting team building activities together, do you believe there are benefits to team building exercises? So, yes. <laughs> Always a caveat, right? <laughs> I, I say yes, absolutely, but it has to be really well thought out and with clear goals. Um, I think there are limits to what we can accomplish in one day. And I think businesses have to kind of be realistic about that. Mm. One of the jokes that I make around team building, especially when it's after hours stuff and it's required, I call it mandatory optional team building. How mindful do managers have to be when it comes to scheduling formal team activities outside of work hours? Yeah, I, I call it I call it forced fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that the whole culture of, oh, we always have fun at work. And it's like, oh boy, what does that mean? <laughs> um, but I, I definitely prefer that it happens on company time um, because I think it just starts to create all sorts of different logistical issues if we try to do things after work hours. Um, you know, just considering things that people have going on in their lives. It could be childcare, um, having a sport or activity that somebody wants to go to afterwards or have to go home and walk their dog um, or you're just tired of seeing your coworkers' faces after eight <laughs> hours and you just want to go home, which is all these things are valid, right? Mm. A, a couple of months ago, we talked about how meetings can sometimes be something of a time suck. When team building is scheduled like it should be during work hours, what consideration should be taken for employees? Because so often workload and productivity expectations are kept in place, even though the time commitment is mandatory there's really a really amazingly simple solution to this. It's just stop it. Just stop with the expectations of trying to make people do both. Um, and I've, I've worked at places where they made it part of their company culture. So the expectation was set, not just for the employees, but for clients. You know, there were warnings ahead of time. We're going on our one day team building retreat. 
you're not going to have access to any of us. And this is an important part of one of our core values. Um, and they used it. They took advantage of that by posting on LinkedIn and saying, hey, this is how well we treat our employees. But there was no expectation that we were going to get work done that day. Or there was work, but it was work in the context of this is what we're doing to build our company culture. Let's come back to things like lunches or happy hours. What are things that organizers forget about dietary needs? Well, for me, somebody who has food allergies, it's, it can be a nightmare. It can, be, it can mean that I'm, I'm starving. <laughs> um, you know, I'm gluten-free, I'm dairy-free, I'm allergic to shellfish. Um, and for some reason, caterers read that as, let's give this person the most bland dish possible. But, <laughs> but, but that's even if I've been taken into consideration. Um, and, you know, I joke about it, but I, you know, I, don't luck- I luckily don't have a life-threatening allergy. But for those who do, this is very serious. And then there's other considerations, different kinds of diets, either for religious reasons or uh, for, let's say, diabetes or needing low sodium or those kind of things. Um, I think businesses need to take this very seriously. If you're going to treat your employees, we need to treat them well and and treat them in a way that is safe so that they can eat um, and be comfortable just like everyone else. What about the presence of alcohol at these kinds of functions? Well, for me, it's uncomfortable. I also don't drink. And there's plenty of people who don't drink for all sorts of different, you know, reasons. Um, But also I've seen alcohol do some things where things get really weird, really fast, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) At a a workplace party, you know, I've seen bosses dancing on tables. And that's, to me, something that we don't need to see that that shouldn't be part, I think, of of your culture. but we need to also look at things, people who are taking certain medications, uh, people who are recovering alcoholics, maybe gifting alcohol is not, um, is not really the way to go about it if we want to be inclusive. Especially when we're thinking about outside the office, what should organizers be looking for in terms of accessibility in the physical space? Well, I want to go, I guess, beyond beyond the physical. Okay, you know, sure, or the, of course. Or the, even the, the minimal physical of course, accessibility. Of course, of course. But things like uh, transport, getting there, getting back, is it safe? Is there a safe public transport nearby? Um, you know, I've seen many things where the buses stop running at 9 p.m. So, okay, well, how do, you, how do people get home? Mm. Um, you know, is there parking? Is that parking accessible? Um, you know, I worked at one place that uh, gave taxi vouchers to anybody who wanted afterwards. It's really about thinking ahead, thinking about ahead about how people are going to be leaving your venue, Um and then also things inside the venue, you know, we have different things about accessibility, but sometimes when they say, well, is there seating? And they say, yes, but it's bar stool seating, which is not accessible for a lot of people. I mean, I'm short, my legs are gonna dangle, I'm gonna fall off. <laughs> this is the people who have back problems who can't get up on a bar stool. Um, you know, we're, we're just even having the logistics of carrying your food, you know, is there a tray or am I supposed to balance a paper plate and, and oh, a cup yeah. and, oh, and yeah. wander around, right? Um, just all those little details. The the buffet thing absolutely destroys me at public functions. It's like, okay, let's all try to like socialize and use the buffet. It it's 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 a disaster waiting to happen and like super unsanitary in the in the, in the COVID world that we live in. So yeah. Kelly, based on the chat we just had, are there risks that team building events and work socials can actually backfire? Oh, 100 percent. For me, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It, it's uh, I feel like if my needs haven't been considered, um, I leave. I don't have a strong sense of belonging. 
um, at that place. I don't feel like, I feel like I've been forgotten, right? Um, and I think that can, again, also uh, businesses who think that a team building is going to uh, solve all these problems in one day, whatever, you know, if they're trying to work on some sort of cultural uh, team problem or something, it's not going to solve a problem right away. Um, you can't just have one discuss discussion about microaggressions, let's say, and, and hope the problem solved. It doesn't work like that. Um, but if I've been left out by either uh, you've gifted me alcohol that I can't drink, um, or you've left me hungry because there's food that's not safe for me to eat. Um, I feel pretty much like not only am I left out, but in some cases it can be downright dangerous for mm. an employee. Yeah. At a certain point, it feels like you don't know me. You don't, you don't value me. You haven't taken the time to even like learn I iota about me to know what right. makes me content. You're just trying to foist something upon me. Kelly, let's try to end here on a positive note. Do you have a memory of a team building exercise or event that was actually kind of awesome? When I worked at McGill Athletics, they used to give us some free tickets to Montreal Alouettes football games where we, we could sit as a group. But in that case, it wasn't mandatory. It was just a really fun perk. For me, like I've always enjoyed those kind of perks. Uh, you know, I used to have uh, fifteen percent off at the Scandinavian spa near the workplace, which I thought was mm, fantastic. Mm. Um, but I've I've actually enjoyed events where I was introduced to experiences um, or places that I wouldn't normally either be able to attend or just hadn't really thought of. Um, and for me, like one of those fun perks was uh, the uh, private lounge at the Bell Center. Um, and I got to watch a hockey game. And I'm not even a hockey fan, but mm, mm. <laughs> ooh, ooh, shh, I won't say that loud. No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to me, that was an experience. It was a once in a lifetime experience. I'm probably never, ever going to go up into one of those lodges again. And I got to spend some relaxed time with my coworkers in, in a situation where, um, you know, I wouldn't normally have been able to go. Um, I like those kind of things where, where those kind of perks where it, it wasn't mandatory, but it was definitely something that I was happy to be able to try and be able to try something new. Mm. Um, other experiences I had were uh, to go and volunteer. Um, and so as a group, we all went and volunteered at a food bank. And again, it was a completely different experience, a completely different context to see your workmates in. Um, but doing something good for society and having a completely interesting and new experience. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, those are really, really good examples. Hey, Kelly, thank you for some insight on this topic today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Let's bring in Corinne Van Dusen for the big business story of the day. Corinne, you got a neat story here about the rise of franchisees in a post-pandemic world. Yeah, it caught my attention because um, reading a lot of stuff you just talked about, um, workplaces and doing things there and a lot of people heading back to the office, not heading back. But in the months after the pandemic hit, many people with corporate jobs actually took a fresh look at what they were going to do to make a living. So some left their jobs and looked for alternatives. And this included opening up a franchise with an established brand. They're called Quasipreneurs. As the article says, and opening franchises, they say they like the ability to buy into a proven brand name and the access to tools and operations that you wouldn't get if you started your own small business. Mm. 
But they realized that franchising has plenty of challenges, too. There are a lot of rules and regulations to abide by and lengthy contracts, which can be difficult to get out of. But start, a lot of people have um, changed career jobs, changed careers post-pandemic and, um, you know, kind of looked at, figured out what they wanted to do. And this, like a quasi-entrepreneur, I get it because you didn't start your own business, but you are running a business. I think that's like, for lack of a better word, pretty cool that people kind of exited the rat race to enter like, you know, a franchise business. Especially in a world where there's a lot of crowding and saturation of markets. There's pretty much no markets that aren't saturated at this point. There is something to be said about that franchise model. Although, as you pointed out, there are a lot of costs that go along with it and a lot of control that you don't get, right? There are certain mandatory minimums that you have to send back to head office. There are certain things you have to do in regards to menu items or cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. But the benefits in terms of saying, hey, I've got this very recognizable golden arches or big red font named after a hockey player on the front of my store, it definitely allows you to say, I don't need to necessarily advertise or draw people into this place because the brand recognition will do that for me. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is a, is a, it is a step because if you're not uh, – if you're timid or tentative about opening something of your own, the recognition – does help because you kind of go in knowing that people are going to go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like what is what does it cost to run your own social media? What does it cost to pay for your own advertising? What does it cost to pay for your own uh, presentation of like boards at the store? That's all very complicated stuff. I can definitely see where it's valuable in the food industry. I wonder though in terms of the retail franchise industry if that benefit is still there, especially when so much of that retail space is moving online. Are you literally just a place where people go to try on the shoe before they buy it online? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I My mind went completely to towards the food service industry. As we do. As you and I do. That's our natural <laughs> instinct. So I, yeah, I didn't – oh, yeah, I haven't I haven't thought about the, uh, the retail aspect. But – yeah, things are also um, changing in regards to people's habits of shopping again. You know, lots of people are staying online, but lots of people want to get out there. Your example of shoe shopping is perfect. Yeah. You know, I can't order shoes online because, you, you know, uh, well, I can't. I can order one kind of shoe because I know my size. And yeah, I'm the same. In there. I'm the same. I know exactly which <laughs> shoe will fit my foot based on the cut of shoe in the manufacturer. But that's it. One shoe. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Corinne, thank you for this. We'll talk to you again in a couple minutes for the uh, regional, news, regional news update. Thanks. That is Corinne Van Dusen with the big business story of the day coming up next. Oh, things are going to get handsome in here. Amy Manti is going to review the new movie, The Gray Man, starring Ryan Gosling. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Monday edition of AMI at the Movies, and things are about to get real handsome as Amy Amanti reviews the Netflix movie The Gray Man, starring Ryan Gosling, and as I just found out, Chris Evans. Come on, Ryan Gosling and Captain America in this one. Amy is also the host of the AMI original podcast, Accessing Art with Amy. Hello, Amy. Well, hello, Dave. (laughs) Amy, I'm always interested 
as to why you press play on some of these things. Oftentimes it's true crime. Every now and then we mm-hmm. dip you into the action world. High school comedies have been a, have been a recent fixation. But why did you hit play on this film of this genre? You know, I think a part of why I hit play is I'm trying to find some diversity in things and even stretch myself a little bit as a movie watcher. Um, also, sometimes things just pop up on your Netflix feed as a must-watch. <laughs> and you're like, okay, if you say so. Sometimes the algorithm just uh, fires it out to you and you're like, okay, well, if the algorithm says so, then I should That's just right. hit play. Uh, Somehow it knows me better than I know myself. Yeah. <laughs> Amy, give me a bit of a synopsis here of what this movie's about. Okay, so this is The Gray Man. It's uh, billed as a 2022 American action thriller, and it's also based on a novel by the same name that was released in 2009. Um, And so essentially what we're doing in this film is we're following uh, the main character whose name is Court Gentry. There's actually something really cool about the name Court Gentry, but uh, I digress. (laughs) So Court Court Gentry is a prisoner, and he's gone uh, to jail because he's been convicted of murder, But he was a minor when he was convicted of murder. So then we sort of gloss over that and skip to eight years later. He's still in prison, obviously, because he's serving a really heavy sentence for murder. And he gets visited by a CIA officer who basically tells him that he can get him out of jail if he comes to work for the CIA um, as an undercover operative. Basically, we'll train you to kill bad guys. Um, and so he hums and haws about it and uh, decides to take up the offer because otherwise he'll be in jail for the rest of his life. And then that scene sort of ends and we transport again to like 16 years later. And he's like well into this. So we don't get to see him be trained or any of that. We just Whoa, jump right in into time, time jump city over we're here. Time jumping. Yeah. And uh, and all of a sudden he's uh, he's in this middle of this plot where he has learned that he has been asked to kill one of his own. So another operative. So now known as Sierra Six, he's been asked to kill Sierra Four. And, you know, what are the choices that he makes around, you know, as this happens? Because there's going to be collateral damage as a plot unfolds to, uh, I don't know, there's there's hidden secrets within the agency, we'll just say that. Okay, okay, as there should be. It's the CIA. There's, of course, going to be, someone's going to backstab somebody and turn on someone and the tables are going to turn again. Uh, Amy, I'm going to jump around all over the place here because you mentioned the double time jump. What Mm. do you think of that technique from a film perspective? I think that's a little bit excessive. Yeah, I mean, it's been used a lot, as you well know, to be able to fit in a lot of content in a small period of time. Um, But I think sometimes it's the journey that's more interesting than the destination Mm -hmm. in some of these films. So it might have been more interesting to see how how the operative was trained. But that's not what this movie is about. So this one really is about the operation that goes very wrong. And uh, and they give you this really, really small amount of backstory. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting kind of born identity vibes from it, right? Trying to replicate something along those lines. Yeah. I, I, I suppose to a certain extent there's some born identity. Although if I remember correctly, Jason Bourne had some kind of um, component to him. Maybe it was an experimental component. You know, like the Wolverine was a human, but he had some kind of experimental thing that made him kind of superhuman. (laughs) And this court gentry dude, Sierra Six, is just a dude. Just a dude. just a dude. Just a dude. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, I guess he's got such high-class training that he's one of those dudes that can, like, 
fall from ceilings and doesn't get a mark on them. Yeah, you know? yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of these dudes because I mentioned mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling, I mentioned Chris Evans. Anybody else of note to keep this cast cast particularly aesthetically pleasing? Well, I mean, there's a huge bunch of folks in this cast and every time I do these segments I'm like oh who do I pull out and I try and pull out the names that folks may know so of course you know Ryan Gosling and of course you know Chris Evans um and Billy Bob Thornton oh yeah Billy oh my Bob. goodness oh Good my Billy Bob. this is so handsome this movie <laughs> so Billy Bob uh, uh plays um our agent Donald Fitzroy who was the one who came to uh to the prison to try and get Sierra Six into uh into the cia but he's now a retired cia agent because we fast forward so far into the future right so he's when the plot unfolds he's retired but he's still mixed up in it so is Uh, he a good guy or bad guy i'll never tell okay (laughs) you'll never we'll never tell we'll never know unless we unless we actually watch the film um so i've always been a big fan of ryan gosling not just because i objectify the man he's the only actor that i truly objectify because he is so darn handsome but billy bob thornton pretty good actor chris evans pretty darn good actor who's made quite an action career for himself outside of just being captain america not just flexing those biceps holding up helicopters how are the performances performances i thought were great it for me it was the highlight of the movie that the performances were, were quite strong. This is a, a different role for Chris Evans than I've really ever experienced to him in. So he's quite a nasty, nasty, nasty guy in this one. Mm. And uh, we don't often, I mean, we, we, you're like, you're right. We kind of objectify him as a superhero to some extent. So this is a bit of a, was a bit of a flip for me, but I thought he did. I was creeped out. We'll just say I was creeped out. Okay. Okay. So appropriately he, so. He hit the creepy mark. We we definitely mm-hmm. like that one. And it's it's good. It's good when someone can. It's actually good to have a foil like that in these movies. You need a good bad guy, or these you. movies don't work. Um, if you don't have conflict, movies don't work at all. Amy, I've got two questions about description here. Mm-hmm. Before I ask you more broadly about description, tell me a bit about the fight scenes here and how description was utilized in those scenes. Yeah, so I thought that the description of the fight scenes was really was really well done. Sometimes uh, in fight sequences, what happens is they try and give you every single thing play by play, and you actually can't unpack it in your mind. Um, this often actually happens with the superhero movies because um, a lot of the action is superhuman. And so you're like, well, geez, I've never seen a human do anything like that before. How would I do, like, how would my body do something like that? Um, so I thought that these sequences were, the the moments were picked appropriately for description, and then they would just sort of unpack a moment as it was going through. Um, so I thought that that was really well done. What about the audio, audio description more generally speaking? Well, the audio description more generally speaking, I mean, essentially in a movie like this, it's absolutely necessary. Was it the greatest audio description I've ever experienced? No, I think there were some moments where I felt like I wasn't quite quite able to grasp the story the way that I had wanted to in an equitable way. Um, and because I was watching it without uh, somebody's working eyeballs, I wasn't able to fill in some of those gaps. Sometimes I'm able to because somebody's with me and they're like, oh, this happened. And I was like, oh, okay, gotcha. I'm back on track, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but without having that extra, sometimes I felt like I, I was just just a step behind what was happening. In some scenes. Mm. So this film, I mentioned the Bourne identity before in terms of sort of that CIA component, who's double crossing Mm. who. I also got some vibes of watching the little thumbnail preview on Netflix that maybe we've got some John Wick components here. The two things in common with those movies is they came on to span big universes and sequels. Mm -hmm. What do you anticipate the future is for this film? 
Well, um, it's not me anticipating it. It is widely available in a, in a Google search, which is what I thought was so interesting about this, is that the week after it was released, uh, this film got such great... Uh, I'm going to say a great money making, like people talk with their money, mm -hmm, but of course mm -hmm. critics are not saying the same thing that the money's saying. Right. But anyways, it got, it made so much money that they announced, um, two things, uh, something that's going to grow into a franchise. So they're calling it the gray man universe. Okay. And, uh, the and GMU. Also, yeah, that's right. And also a spinoff. Um, so we're going to be, we're the, the, the directors are going to, be brought back on for the uh, for the sequel, and Ryan Gosling will also be in the sequel. And then there is going to be there's going to be a, a spinoff that's going to explore some other factions, I guess, that they want to talk about within the Gray Man universe. Amy, I know that I've kind of uh, shared my thoughts here on Ryan Gosling. I would say he's probably one of the best actors breathing oxygen right now. Where do you stand on the Ryan Gosling conversation? <laughs> You know, what I like about Ryan Gosling is that he's quite diverse. I mean, you can see him in, you know, some of the most fantastic romantic comedies mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and and romantic dramas, of course. And then you can see him in these action thrillers. So I think any actor that can sort of bridge that divide who doesn't get cast typed in, you know, any specific genre uh, knows what they're doing. Yeah. And and. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that he's easy on the eyes. He was fabulous comedically in The Big Short. He was really mm -hmm. good in a movie. He was nominated for an Academy Award called Half Nelson. Uh, great, great film if you haven't checked it I out. I haven't from seen like that the, one, no. The, the middle of the last decade, so around 2005, 2006. He was fantastic in that movie. And he's done the action thing, too. He did the ultraviolence movie Drive in 2011, which I mistakenly took a girl on a first date to go see, which was a really <laughs> poor decision. Um, <laughs> Amy, how would you rate The Gray Man out of 10? You mentioned critics haven't been loving it but there's only one critic that matters to me and that's you do you know dave i'm mixed on this one i gave it an eight out of ten because i know some folks re it's got some really great things going for it i think to some extent i'm getting a little bored of seeing the same plot line over and over again because mm. you know this one doesn't have a strong plot line um it's mostly based on action and that's n pretty much what i'm seeing out of these action thrillers is that it's mostly action and no plot line. And I kind of want a little more story. Yeah. A lot of these Netflix action flicks do tend to be just sort of driving first person drivers. Um, mm -hmm. There was a really good one I saw during the pandemic with uh, Chris Hemsworth, Thor. I think that's Thor, whichever, whichever one plays Thor uh, called Extraction, which I really enjoyed too. But again, it really is just like a high tempo, high speed action flick. It didn't mm -hmm. necessarily have the, the John Wick nuance or levels to it. And even John Wick, I'm getting a little concerned. They're making a fourth one and they're making TV shows. Shows, I'm, I'm nervous that it's going to be a little too much a reboot of intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, there's the risk of that, right? And that's driven by big money. It's yeah. driven by, yeah. by how much you spend to go see these films. Cash rules everything around me. Dollar, sure dollar does. bill, yo. Um, Amy, before you go, tell me what's coming up on the next episode of Access and Art with Amy. Oh my gosh, what's coming up on the it next episode? It drops this week. It drops this week on our favorite week. on our favorite podcasting platforms. <laughs> That's right. Do you know, Dave, I've done this tactic now where I am starting to pre-record throughout the season. Oh. <laughs> so it's like, oh gosh, which guest did I just record? Oh, they're not released till September. So uh, I think we're talking to Sasha Coppola in the, this one. Um, Sasha is uh, an artist who is working with cast glass, which is Ooh. really cool. Um, so yeah, she makes... Um, sculpture and then puts it into a casting model and then rips the casting off and then fills that with glass and like it's a really involved oh, wow. technique wow. and also has a studio out of their home 
like taken this really seriously. So I thought that the genre is fascinating and I may, may have to make a visit to visit, visit out to Manitoba. To oh, see yeah. I love that. I love the idea of thinking about textured art and physical art yes. as opposed to just sort of paintings or music or films. We sometimes yeah. forget about those interesting acts. Amy, they're playing the music. They're saying we got to go. So that means we say goodbye. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Dave. That's Amy Amanti, film reviewer in Vancouver, BC, offering up a review of The Gray Man, which you can find on Netflix. It's rated PG-13. Coming up after the break, we get to the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Monday, August the 8th, 2022 edition of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, AMI.ca, or maybe you're listening to us in the future on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. On as large as television tales have included. Speaking of the regions, let's bring in... Thanks, Dave. Starting in the territories where officials in the Northwest Territories are keeping a close eye on a so-called holdover fire that has recently grown to about 65 square kilometers. Also known as a zombie fire, researchers say they can occur in Arctic, subarctic, and northern boreal forests and may become more common because of climate change. The territory has already seen more than 3,800 square kilometers of land scorched by 189 wildfires so far this year. In British Columbia, Provincial Wildfire Service there says controlled burns are scheduled in the south southern Okanagan region in a bid to control a large fire that has been burning for more than a week. Information Officer Mikhail Elsie says the planned burn will increase the perimeter of the fire, currently located about 21 kilometers southwest of Penticton, and will ultimately help contain the nearly 60 square kilometer fire. He says crews will ignite less than half a square kilometer area to bring the fire down to safe, workable ground. Elsa says the region has been much hotter and drier over the past few days, and will incre- which will increase fire activity, but calmer winds should help firefighters. Online-oriented school won't come to the table. Dimitrios Nikolaitis says he is willing to help with whatever the university wants, including money, to relocate up to 500 employees to the small town that the school's namesake. Nikolaitis says he asked earlier this year for a plan from the university to move staff, but says they failed to step up. University President Peter Scott said the idea would siphon off vital resources while making it harder for the school to compete for top quality talent. And the Saskatchewan party marked its 25th birthday over the weekend. The celebration in Davidson featured appearances by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, party founder Ken Quaritz, and Premier Scott Moe. On August 8, 1997, former Conservative leader Bill Boyd and Quaritz, who was former Liberal opposition leader, announced the formation of the Sask Party. The party made an impact with about a decade later, when under the leadership of Brad Wall, it captured 38 seats to form its first government. In Ontario, the legislature resumes today for the start of a new session, their first sitting since progressive conservatives won a second majority government in early June. There will be a throne speech tomorrow, followed by the budget, which is being reintroduced in the middle of the health care crisis and skyrocketing infl- inflation. The throne speech is expected to address both issues, 
but whether any new measures will be added to the deal with them remains to be seen. The legislature's first order of business is electing a speaker with two Tories filing for the job. And today kicks off the start of Unifor's fourth constitutional convention with members from across Canada gathering in Toronto this week to elect the union's next leader. This comes several months after National President Jerry Diaz stepped down. Diaz, who has long been the union's face, did so after being charged with violating the code of ethics and democratic practices of its constitution. Delegates will also vote on for the next secretary general, treasurer, and regional directors throughout the week, as well as on key priorities and initiatives. And in the Atlantic area, a forest fire in central Newfoundland triggered a state of emergency in the area over the weekend. The emergency was declared Saturday night in the areas of Grand Falls, Windsor, Bishop Falls, and Carnegie Peninsula, urging residents to be ready to respond if the situation deteriorated further. Last evening, the province issued a statement saying there was no immediate threat to homes. The fire has been burning for close to two weeks in central Newfoundland and has prompted road closures, including the Bay Despair Highway. And the premier of PEI sent off the island's team to the Canada Games over the weekend. Dennis King issued a statement encouraging all Islanders to cheer on the team. He said the sight of athletes wearing the distinctive green and white team PEI gear is an experience Islanders delight in. The Summer Games are being held in the Niagara region until August 21st. And those are your regional news headlines. Thank you for this, Corinne. Corinne, I've got a question for you because you and I are of the same generational ilk. Have you watched the Woodstock 99 documentary that dropped on Netflix a couple of weeks ago? Not yet. I watched the one that was on Crave a while ago. Yep, that was Uh, a good one. one. Yeah, so this one... Um, I've read a lot of stuff about it and I will be watching it. Um, actually I know a few people who were there. Oh, no way. No way. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I always ask them, I fact check, you know, with them and say, did this happen? Mm -hmm, And, uh, mm -hmm. they were like, yeah, that last day was pretty, you know, pretty out there. (laughs) The, the ringer did a great podcast series a couple of years ago called, uh, break stuff, which was a multi-part podcast series on, uh, on, on the festival as well. So there's been a lot done about it. I also remember following along live as it was happening and just being so fascinated by it. And even though it was a total disaster and maybe the worst place on earth, I was just a little too young. I hadn't turned 16 yet. It's one of my great regrets in life that I didn't get to go there because that was the festival of festivals of 90s music, undoubtedly. Oh, yeah, for sure. It had it had everyone there. But had you gone, I hoped you would have left before the last day. <laughs> no, no, I would have gotten involved in the mob mentality, Corinne. You oh, know me. I'm oh, always geez. willing to join the herd. Uh, Corinne, that's, that's not true at all. I'm the opposite of a herd joiner. Corinne, we will talk to you later. Thank you very much and uh, have yourself a great day. Thank you. That is Corinne Van Dusen filling in for Mike Ross with the regional news update. Let's bring in Jeff Ryman for a sports chat. Jeff Ryman back from vacation, my friend. How was the time away? Uh, It was good, Dave. You know, just uh, sitting at a cottage, drinking a couple of beers, soaking up the sun. Mm. Life's good. Life's good, Dave. Were you off the grid or was there some internet access? There was definitely a little bit of internet access. Um, not too far off the grid, but off the grid just enough, I will say that. <laughs> okay, well, I've got a question for you while you spent some time partially off the grid. You and I don't spend a ton of time talking about the Canadian Football League, largely because, well, you know what, I'm not going to put any words in anybody's mouth. I just find it's really tough to follow along. I need a teensy tiny break from football for a couple months during the year. But there is a story 
brewing out of British Columbia right now with the BC Lions and their rookie quarterback, Nathan Rourke, who is tearing the league up as a rookie, as a Canadian starting for the BC Lions, leads the league in touchdown passes, even though he started the least amount of games of any quarterback in the league. He leads all quarterbacks in rushing touchdowns. He's even in the top 10 in the whole league in rushing touchdowns. Jeff, 24 years old, a product of Ohio University, not the Ohio State, Ohio University, the Bobcats, in his rookie year as a Canadian, tearing up the league, Jeff, is this the best storyline and player and star the CFL has had since maybe Anthony Calvillo, maybe all the way back to Doug Flutie? Is this enough to draw you to your television screen on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday nights? I'm telling you, Dave, it is getting there. I will fully admit I'm in the same boat as you, Dave. It, it is a little bit tough to follow, and I I, I think partially you know, a partial reason to that is what happened uh, with COVID. Uh, you know, there was no CFL season for a full year, and I just feel like ever since then it's been sort of slow starting to get back up. Uh, but having a quarterback like Rourke, I mean, you mentioned the stats, they're they're off the charts and he's only played seven games in the CFL. So I will say, Dave, maybe pump the brakes just a tad, but I'm not <laughs> saying go full slam on those brakes because what he's been doing so far this season has been nothing short of remarkable. You mentioned some really great quarterbacks. I mean, Anthony Calvillo, this guy played it seems forever, like forever. forever. I, I thought he was. I thought he was never going to retire, Dave. <laughs> um, but he was definitely one of those quarterbacks that I really watched growing up. I think you got to throw in maybe Damon Allen in yeah, there as yeah, well. That's true. Um, into into that category, Doug Flutie for sure. Henry Burris. 90s. Henry Burris. Uh, Henry Burris. Absolutely. Uh, th- there have been some really great quarterbacks, but I think what you mentioned, the sort of the cherry on the top. Uh, you know, if, if he completes this full season and, and and still is at the level that he has been for the first half of this year, I think that he's definitely going to put himself in that discussion. And I, the the one thing I really love is that he is Canadian. I mean, he's, yeah. he was, he grew up in Victoria, BC. He plays for the BC lions. It's just a magical story, Dave. So uh, I'm all on board with this. And every time you watch the highlights, if you, if you flick on TSN, um, they usually lead with, oh, Nathan work, Nathan work this, mm-hmm. Nathan work that mm-hmm. he is all over the place. He is going to be the next superstar, but I would sort of pump the brakes before, you know, you know, uh, he's seven games into his CFL career. Uh, Anthony Calvillo played years and years and years and Doug Flutie as well. So yeah. uh, he's he's definitely on his way to getting there. That's for sure. Let's be clear, though. When football is at its best, it's when quarterbacks dominate the league. And this isn't to yeah. be critical of Henry Burris or Zach Caleros or any of the guys who've been or, or Bo Levi Mitchell of the Calgary Stampeders, guys who've been playing really well in the league for a long time for the last couple of decades. But when the CFL was really cooking in the late 90s and early 2000s. You had Doug Flutie in Toronto. You had Anthony Calvillo in Hamilton. You had Tracy Hamm in Montreal. You had stars up and down the league. You had great rivalries. And that's something we're seeing with Nathan Rourke at 24 years old of being potentially the future of the league. And of course, Bo Levi Mitchell is not an old man by any stretch, so he could be around for a little while longer. Zach Calero is still in the league now. There's still the possibility here of building 
six to seven really great quarterbacks across the league, and that's what you need for the CFL to be hopping. So I'm excited, Jeff. I I think I'm going to have to start making the appointment viewing on TSN for these BC Lions games, and because they've had more bye weeks than anybody else so far, it means there's going to be a lot of opportunities to watch those Lions on the prowl. So really, really exciting stuff there. Jeff, my other observation from the weekend comes from the West Coast. You were away last week, but you were the first person to break the news to me that the San Diego Padres acquired Juan Soto, the best young hitter since Mickey Mantle, since Ted Williams last week uh, on the West Coast at the MLB trade deadline. So San Diego goes, they make these big trades, these huge additions. Here we are, we're swaggering around. We beat up on the Colorado Rockies. Big weekend series in Los Angeles against the Dodgers, the NL leading, the major league leading Los Angeles Dodgers. And what do the Padres do? They lay an egg as the Dodgers laid the lumber on them, Jeff. I don't mean to take away too much as a small sample size of a three-game series, but that needs to be really discouraging for the San Diego Padres after making all the splashy moves last week and then just getting spanked. Yeah, Uh, and if you look at the American media right now, like this is a huge story. I mean, you you open ESPN.com and it's smack dab on on the center of the page there. The the Dodgers sweep the Padres. (laughs) Uh, It's big news, but at the same time, yeah, it is kind of a small sample size. It hasn't even been a week since Juan Soto uh, arrived and and started playing. Um, And for Fernando Tatis, I mean, he's just started. He just started his rehab, just started his rehab assignment this weekend yeah so i mean you gotta pump the brakes uh, a, a little bit there as well but i guess it is a little bit of a cause for concern i mean they they've spent a ton of money and it's just funny looking at all the reactions from around the league especially from the executives some of the executives across the league are saying I don't understand what San Diego is doing. I mean, they're way over. I don't know where they're getting this money from. And then some executives are saying, good for them. They're putting a product on the field that their fans are going to enjoy. And they don't really care what the repercussions are. Um, You know, I just hope they don't go down the Golden Knights type of road where they spend all this money, they run into problems, and they don't even make the playoffs because they're just hanging on to that last wildcard spot by a thread. So they need to win a lot of games in the next uh, couple of months to make the playoffs. I think I would suspect they would once they really start to get going, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a bit of cause for concern losing a, a couple in a row to the lowly LA Dodgers. Yeah, well, the, the ultimately, this is what you end up chasing, right? They're not chasing the Milwaukee Brewers. They're not chasing the St. Louis Cardinals. The team they need to beat come September and come October is the LA Dodgers. That's the team that's had their kryptonite yeah. for a couple of years now. Very similar to the way that Boston used to chase the Yankees. Kryptonite, kryptonite, kryptonite until you actually break them. So it's it's becoming one of those fascinating West Coast storylines, but it was a great weekend for baseball. The New York mm-hmm. the Mets and the Atlanta Braves had an awesome series. There was also uh, the Blue Jays going up against the Twins all weekend long, which was a good one. The Blue Jays continuing playing teams in their sphere tonight when they visit Baltimore in what turns out to be a really important series for the Jays and for the Orioles. It's that time of year, Jeff. It's the, They call it the dog days of summer, but I'm into it, man. I am into some of this baseball. So lots for us to feast our eyes upon, and we'll probably talk about the Jays tomorrow because uh, you'll make me. 
<laughs> Either that, and uh, you can't forget the World Junior Championships are going to be starting oh, up really soon, and too. I know. And there are no dark clouds swirling around that event at all. <laughs> Not at all. No, Not no dark, no, no distractions at all that like <laughs> that bear much more examination. Uh, Jeff, thank you for this. Of course, Steve. See ya. Glad to have our buddy Jeff Ryman back at the AMI Sports Desk, but we've had a constant all summer long. It's Grace Scofield at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland this hour with a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 19 degrees. In Charlottetown, some showers ending this morning, then mainly cloudy with periods of rain beginning this afternoon and a risk of a thunder shower early this morning with a high of 20 degrees. In St. John, it's mainly cloudy today with a high of 17 degrees. Over in Quebec City, there's some rain happening today with a high of 17 degrees. In Toronto, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 30 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a few showers beginning this morning and ending this afternoon with a high of 21 degrees. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 31 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny today, with a high of 33 degrees. Whew. It gets worse. <laughs> Over in Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny today, with a heat warning in effect, and a high of 34 degrees. Oh my goodness, tough day in the prairies. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning, with a high of 24 degrees. Up in Whitehorse, it's mainly sunny today, with a high of 21 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, it's sunny today, with a high of 32 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny today, with a high of 25 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, Canada's largest telecom companies are in a race to provide the highest speed internet possible. Mark Flalo. We'll plug you in with details on that story. But first, do artificial intelligence art generators have a bias? Here's Chuck Sievertson with Tech Trends. Futurist Sinead Bovell says AI art generators work by letting users enter a prompt and then using artificial intelligence and a vast database of online images to draw a picture of that prompt. But there are concerns about that database of imagery, she says. The way the model has been trained, so whatever set of images paired with text um, that have gone into power this model, if there is any bias in those data sets, the model's output would be a reflection of that. Examples of bias have already cropped up with Dolly 2. Dolly 2 was asking you an input prompt, generate a photo of a, or an image of a lawyer. Um, and the output tended to be white males. With Tech Trends, Chuck Sievertson, ABC News.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in our friend Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV to talk about what's happening in the world of technology. Of course, you can find the TV show Double Tap TV Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. And you can find Mark Aflalo in beautiful Montreal, Quebec. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm well. So, Mark, today we're talking about internet speed. A bunch of Canadian telecom companies are trying to prove they can be the fastest. But, Mark, before we look to the future, give me a sense of the present. What are we topping out at, generally speaking, right now when it comes to the major Canadian telcos? Pretty much across the country, we're topping out at about 1.5 gigabit connections, with one exception being in some parts of Ontario, where Bell has launched three gigabit service. See, Ontario, the center of the universe. I'm telling you, you put your headquarters somewhere and suddenly you're the guinea pig, but uh, waiting for those speeds here. But yeah, (laughs) 1.5 is pretty much where we're topping out in major metropolitan areas with the exception of the three gigabit in in Ontario, in Toronto, City Central. Um, I mean, and it goes down pretty much as, as you go out. Imagine the, 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 you know, the ripple effect here heads down to like, I think 25 megabytes is the slowest that you can get out in cottage country. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. not, not that great across the country. Um, if you, if you, you know, kind of average it out, but if you're in a major metropolitan area, you're getting pretty decent speeds, but the telcos are striving here for better internet speeds. What are they aiming for? What are the, what's the goal? What's the target they're looking at? The goal right now is eight gigabits, gigabits symmetrical. What does that mean? Eight gig up, eight gig down. Whew. That's, that's insanity. <laughs> I must tell you, when 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 one gigabit service was was launched in my area, I was clamoring for it because I really wanted to get the speeds both up and down. Because what happens is, is download speeds are great because you can stream content and then it's wonderful. But when your upload speeds are still limited and still capped at a certain number, yeah, it does affect your overall experience. Because imagine the time it takes from you know clicking this link to getting your content is slower when your upload speed is down. That's when the actual difference actually takes place. With 8 gigabit speeds, we're talking about instant access to your your multimedia, to your streaming. We're talking about a whole new experience when it comes to computing in the cloud. You'll be able to actually run full computer experiences in the cloud. To give you an indication, I mean, 10 gigabits is ultra, ultra, ultra fast, and very few office spaces even have it. And the ones that do are ones that are working off network attached storage devices for large, large, large mm-hmm. files, animation mm-hmm. and video editing and stuff like that. So even then, you know, 10 gigabits is absolutely insane. So to have eight gigabit access to the internet, it means that you're probably still going to feel bottlenecks, but only because of the site in which you're going to may have a lesser connection than you do. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of think about this in context that I know I downloaded a video game a couple of weeks ago and I think it was 64 gigs or something like that. And it took about, oh, I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes for it to download completely, which by the way is a totally reasonable amount of time for Correct. something to take yeah, to yeah. download. <laughs> but when we're talking about eight gigs per second, that means this video game would have been downloaded in less than 10 seconds. Yeah, pretty much. You would hit download and it would just suddenly go. Imagine computer updates, Xbox updates, game system updates that normally take, I don't know, a half hour, 20 minutes sometimes to update a console. And again, reasonable, know, you, reasonable amounts of time. Yeah, reasonable amounts of time. And you turn them on and you get annoyed because you're like, oh, I wanted to play my, you know, <laughs> Grand Theft Auto or whatever game you wanted to play at the time. No, so no. Even in video game worlds, I can't drive well. Yeah, well, you, you should you should battle Stephen Scott. He takes the trucks and uh, he goes for it. <laughs> That's crazy. right. He but, does. 
but you'll be able to download updates for games and updates for all this stuff in 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 seconds, Dave. And this is, you know, some people may say, okay, that's great. That's, you know, we're not really going to affect me. But it really does. It affects access to information that, you know, your your smart speakers will be able to respond that much quicker. Your podcasts will play better. Um, you'll be able to get higher quality content faster. So people who might listen to, you know, lower quality MP3s or low quality, you know, SD streams of video will be able to bump it up to 4K over just regular Internet connections. So it really does change a lot of things in the landscape of the Internet as we know it. What's the realistic timetable of these companies actually meeting this goal slash where are they right now, at least reportedly in this race? Well, reportedly in the race, they're targeting a September time frame of this year. And I'm talking oh, about wow. Bell and Rogers who have like, made announcements. Like, like yeah. three weeks from now. Yeah, like three weeks from now, they're going to be launching test pilot services again in, in pockets of Ontario um, where we'll see a gigabit service kind of connected. But not only that, but we're going to see them upgrading modems so that people have faster Wi-Fi as well because Wi-Fi 6E, which is the latest protocol for Wi-Fi technology, is capable of much faster speeds as well. You know, you go home and great, you have a one gigabit connection, but if your phone is slow or if your router is slow, wireless speeds, it's going to affect your overall experience. They're going to be doing upgrading that across the board. Really, the limitations are just the infrastructure and the networks. Wherever Bell or Rogers or Telus have fiber optic connections to your home, they are able to provide up to 10 gigabit service right now. They just need the proper hardware on both sides to be able to encode that and decode that. And that stuff is really just a matter of swapping out the hardware that exists. So there will be incremental costs. We're not going to here's the interesting thing. We're starting to see a little bit of a normalization in the internet costs when this stuff rolls out. For example, for the three gigabit service, you'd expect a fairly big jump because you're doubling it from 1.5. But 1.5 now you can get for just about over $100 a month, whereas three gigabit you can get for, you know, about 149. So it's not that big of a jump. Mm. So we're starting to see faster speeds not only be available, but also be available at a little bit lower of a cost, bringing the overall kind of cost to consumer by down and down. I just want to backtrack to the statement you made really at the beginning of this, which is, hey, in metropolitan areas, we're getting great internet. What is the word on maybe trying to get some better internet and better infrastructure to folks out there in more rural communities? And sometimes it's not even that far rural. Sometimes it's like Carlton Place, an hour west of Ottawa, where they're getting terrible internet service. There are the Dave, I've been in situations where on this side of the street I can get great internet quality, but across the street they're they're stuck with just inferior quality because no one ever built a conduit to go under a highway or over a highway to bring fiber optic that direction. And it really comes down to demand at a certain point in time. Now the major telecoms are working really, really hard to continue to grow out fiber optic infrastructure. But there are so many hundreds of millions of feet of cable that go through our country in conduits and, and a lot of it is antiquated and copper and to upgrade that to fiber optic there has to be enough demand in a certain area or someone important enough living on the other end to, ah, yes. to, warrant, to warrant building that infrastructure or sometimes you know it's on on some of the private companies as well for example if an office space opens up somewhere and a company says we need fiber optic connection then then a private company might go and say okay we're going to build the infrastructure we'll share the cost with with Bell or Rogers or yeah, Telus yeah. or getting together and trying to build that infrastructure but we're still we're still pretty pretty behind when it comes to laying fiber optic cable into those rural areas and i think there was a, a belief that you know with wireless speeds becoming better and better they wouldn't necessarily have to run physical hardwired cable to certain areas to get certain speeds but the landscape is really shifting with 8 gigabit speeds available to just regular casual consumers. People are going to demand higher speeds in other places. Yeah. People in cottage country who would just have 25 meg downloads 
are going to be saying, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. You're bringing eight gigabit speeds to this neighborhood, but you can't just give me, I don't know, 100 meg where I live. Yeah. So wireless is not as fast as eight gigabits, nor will it be a reliable backup for major infrastructure. So they've really got to start building things out or continue to build things out on a, on a, on a faster scale. And we're going to see that. I think we'll eventually see the entire country blanketed with extremely fast Internet. But this is one of these things that I think are going to be an ever, ever, ever standing argument. Mark, switching gears here in a big way. You and I are of the same generational ilk. I was saying this to Corinne Van Dusen before. Woodstock 99, they just dropped a really interesting documentary on Netflix. Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it yet. No, but I now that I know about it, I'm going to go see it. You will be very upset. They don't talk about Metallica at all. They don't talk about the Metallica performance at all. They just point the stinky finger at Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and Korn well, and I then mean, walk away. Point the finger at them. I'm okay with that. Point <laughs> not, the finger not, my, not my beautiful Metallica, <laughs> who've never done anything to upset fans ever. No, no, no. no, no not in Montreal either. No, no, no. Not, no, not never, at all. Never, not in the least. Uh, Mark, you have yourself a lovely day, my friend. Thank you, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV. You can find the program Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I am going to find someone who's also watched this documentary besides my boy Bruce Beclarian in uh, the video control room right now. Maybe I'll just bring him on the air to talk about this documentary or I'll mandate it mandated across the team to watch this Woodstock 99 documentary so we can talk about it later in the week. Coming up after the break, I've got your accessibility story roundup. Grace Scofield will be here with entertainment. Nazreen Abdel-Majid will tell you what's trending. And Ramya Anglethan will look ahead to this afternoon on Kelly and Company. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We'll bring in Grace Rumia and Nazreen in just a moment. But first, it's the Accessibility Story Roundup. Oh, this story coming to you from CBC News, written by Ryan Patrick Jones. Passengers with disabilities want to remain in wheelchairs on flights. Advocates are calling on airlines and regulators to figure out a way to allow wheelchair users to remain seated in their personal mobility devices when they fly, as they can on buses and trains. Between the hassle, potential injuries, and damage to wheelchairs stowed alongside luggage, people who rely on wheelchairs for mobility, advocates, and the U.S. Transportation Secretary argue it's time to make make air travel more accessible so people living with disabilities have a more equitable flying experience. The Canadian Transportation Agency says it has received 247 wheelchair-related air accessibility complaints over the last five years, 18 concerned damage to wheelchairs, while 214 were related to wheelchair assistance. But that data only includes complaints to the regulator and not those of when a passenger deals directly with an airline. While Canada-specific data is not available, the largest airlines in the U.S. lost or damaged at least 15,425 wheelchairs or scooters between the end of June, between the end of 2018 and June 2021. Federal regulators in Canada currently require passengers who use a wheelchair to sit in airplane seats, and most mobility devices must be stowed in the cargo hold along with travelers' luggage. The regulations require airlines to ensure proper Properly trained staff conduct wheelchair transfers and reimburse passengers for the cost of repairing or replacing mobility devices that are damaged in transit. 
Not too much to offer here. It's a story that I cover fairly regularly with you, but I wanted to offer a bit of, a bit of a reminder because there were some updated statistics for you there. And it's a reminder in general, as we're talking about chaos and lost luggage at airports, although that story is somewhat regulating, places like Pearson Airport are still quite wacky and air travel remains quite difficult and luggage continues to be lost. It's worth remembering that if somebody uses a mobility device like a wheelchair and they're forced to check it and the airline loses it, simple financial compensation does not actually truly replicate equity and justice for an individual who doesn't have their main mobility device available to them. So just a reminder that I wanted to offer your way as we continue to talk about some troubles in the world of travel. Let's bring in Grace Scofield. It's time for the Entertainment Report. So Grace, you have some box office numbers for me, then I have some numbers for you. I do. I've got the weekend box office numbers. There was one big release in theaters this weekend, and it was Brad Pitt's new movie, Bullet Train, mm-hmm. which came in at the top of the box office numbers with $30.1 million. So a decent size, but for a movie that may cost $90 million to make, it's not a great return not for an, Not an Warner awesome Brothers. opening weekend at all, <laughs> like not, especially considering that we are starting to see some returning to normal in regards to exactly. box office numbers. 30 is a pretty soft opening. Yes, pretty low number, but it's also entering that point in the summer where there aren't many new releases coming up. The next big movies start coming out in December with some new Marvel movies, uh, Avatar 2, and a few other big box offices like that. Okay, okay. So, so we're, we're kind of heading into a lull here. And then following Bullet Train was DC League of Super Pets with $11.2 million. Okay. Nope with $8.5 million. Thor came in at $7.6 million at 4th. Minions at fifth with seven point one, and Top Gun at sixth with seven million. Top Gun just hanging around. It's just it's hanging in there. Elvis dropped to ninth with four million, and Top Gun still up at sixth. Notice, notice that uh, Daniel Penamondo on vacation right now. I assume he's gone to see Top Gun pretty much every day of his vacation. <laughs> I can't, I can't speak to that directly, but uh, but I have a feeling, <laughs> I have a sense. All right, Grace, I've got some numbers for you, but you know what? Let's bring in Nizreen and Ramya on this as well. Nizreen Abdelmajid and Ramya Amuthan, because you have these box office numbers for just this past weekend. Well, postchart.com put out some numbers today about the most concert tickets sold in the last 40 years. Of all the musical touring acts in the last 40 years, the most tickets sold and the amount of money they made. So, Grace, I'm not going to tell you whether you're right or wrong. Someone asked Ramya and Nazreen as well. But, Grace, who do you think topped the list? The most concert tickets sold in the last 40 years. I feel like I know who it is, um, but I I want to guess the Rolling Stones. It's a good guess. Okay. It's a good guess. Let's okay. bring in Nazreen Abdelmajid. Nazreen, you're a noted music lover. Who do you think has sold the most tickets to concerts over the last 40 years? The Rolling Stones is a good guess, but regardless, I'm going to say Justin Bieber because I was checking out his tickets and they are hella expensive. Uh. They're unbelievably <laughs> expensive for just like... You know, you could see a blob of him, and that's how expensive it is. Like, just being outside of the concert will cost you regardless. So I'm just going down the list of the top 24 right now. I do not see Bieber. In fact, I only no see way. one I only see one artist who has emerged in the last 10 years is it Harry on Styles? this list. It's not Harry Styles, Aww, but there's your no. Harry Styles. There's your Harry Styles <laughs> mention for the week. Let's bring in Ramya Amuthan. Ramya, who do you think tops the list of the most concert tickets sold in the last 40 years? 
I'm trying to think, like, again, as Nisreen said, Rolling Stones is a good guess, guess Grace, because I feel like uh, you have to add in, like, how often the individuals or groups have toured, plus how expensive their yeah. tickets were, plus, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, all these different factors. Mm-hmm. Maybe Michael Jackson? Just look in know, here. Michael Jackson. I mean, he really has. I mean, obviously, he hasn't toured in the last 10 years because he's been dead. No. But even then, he hadn't toured in a long time before then. He doesn't make the yeah. top 25 either. Okay. Y'all wow. ready for the number okay. one? Yeah. U2, U2, with 20, over 26 million tickets sold and over $2.1 billion in revenue wow. generated. Now, keep in mind, U2 obviously emerged in the early 1980s and have been a mega band for a huge chunk of those 40 years and continue to tour. Uh, Grace, your guess of the Rolling Stones, number three. Number Sweet. three, wow. the Rolling Stones. I'm okay with that. 22 million to <laughs> over 22 million tickets sold, over $2.1 billion in generated revenue. You guys will never believe who number two is. And I'm not quite sure how they calculated this number, but it's my boys in the Dave Matthews band cracking the number two oh, spot. But, really? but I think the calculation on that's got to be a little bit weird because DMB does so many festivals. So I wonder how you factor in festival ticket sales for a band that who's always like part mm. of sort of larger things when there's other bands involved. Uh, by the way, rounding out the top five, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John. Number six is Metallica. And uh, then it's just okay. sort of go down, go down, go down. I'd mentioned there's only one artist who's really emerged in the last 10 years to crack the top 25. It's Ed Sheeran. Oh, okay. Nearly 11.9 million tickets sold and nearly a billion dollars in revenue. So Ed Sheeran, really the only person uh, bringing up the the rear there in terms of modern music. So there you go. A little bit of fun facts for you guys this morning. Thank you for playing along. Grace, thank you for sharing some numbers with me. Of course. And let's go back to Nazreen Abdel-Majid is going to tell you what's trending. It's a day for the... Feline friends, Nizreen. Yeah, so number one trending today is International Cat Day. And I don't know about you, Dave, but I'm more of a dog person, even though I have unusual pets in my home <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so if you don't know, I have parrot, I have a parrot and two ducklings. Yeah, we hear the and, parrot, uh, we hear the parrot pretty regularly on the show. Yeah, I feel like you should know her by now. But recently I got two ducklings who are sleeping right next to my foot right now, which Aww. they're so cute. Uh, but I want to talk about cats because I had cats uh, in my past. And uh, according to Help Guide, they have many benefits to your life. So obviously, they're low maintenance uh, comparing to dogs and other pets. They are quiet. They are independent. They keep you your house pest free. They have long lifespans. Uh, it can lower stress and anxiety levels in your life. They can improve your cardiovascular health and uh, unconditional love and another companion. Like Ooh, it's cats have it's conditions. In, cats oftentimes have conditions you know what? for love. That's what I, you know. I saw this. I saw the unconditional love, and I'm like, are you sure about that? Because depends on the in cat. my past experience, <laughs> it depends on the cat. When they're kittens, oh my god, they want you so much but right when they grow up which is not a long time like they grow up so fast but when they grow up they want to be independent they don't want to be near you and it i'm not saying all cats are like this but my friend's cat is an unusual cat where she's attached to my friend so much Mm -hmm. she's always cuddling with her always purring on her i'm like what kind of attention do you give her to get that sort of love because i'm the type of person that 
wants that sort of attention from a pet so much, so very much. Yeah. And I know that dogs provide that. And that's why I say dogs over cats 100% because I want to give that much attention. I want that unconditional love. And I know cats are not going to provide that for me 100% sure until I know, like when they grow up. So that's the type of person I am. What about you? Back in November, I was visiting some friends and I stayed in their guest room, which is typically the room where their cat, Raisin, liked to hang out. And uh, when I I slept in the bed, uh, Raisin crawled into bed with me and we had a full snuggle fest all night. And that was lovely. The purring and the cuddling and the, and well, Raisin scratched me a little bit while we were cuddling, but that's okay. That's all right. That was just Raisin showing some affection. Uh, I love it when cats are like that. When when I lived in Toronto in 2011, the, the woman that I was living with had this great orange cat pumpkin who just like loved cuddling with me while I watched TV. So I like the cats that are just sort of a little bit more naturally cuddly and want to do that affection and like want to do the dog thing. I've also had cats. I lived with roommates for years whose cat really disliked me. So that wasn't awesome. But overall, I'd say cats are kind of lovely pets and they are kind of lovely animals. But Mm -hmm. I just like the affectionate ones. And there's no way of knowing whether or not your cat is actually going to be the affectionate type. Whereas with dogs, you can pretty much count on like 95% of dogs are going to be like, come pet me, pet me more. Why aren't you petting me again? Give me more pets. My friend's dog has that sort of thing where I I pet him and right when I let go, he grabs my hand and and puts it on him. And I'm like, that's so cute. I want to get that much affection and love. So, yeah. Well, Nazreen, thank you for this. Let's let's trade you out for noted dog lover Ramya Amuthun is going to tell us what's coming up on Kelly and Company at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Ramya, I've talked about how much I love your dog and love petting your dog and how much your dog seems to enjoy it when I pet him. Where do you stand on cats? I love cats too. I have a lot of friends with cats. Actually, I'm like people's go-to uh, cat sitter in my building. So oh, right um, on. I'm totally, yeah, I'm totally around cats, but I never grew up with cats. Actually, we never grew up with pets at all. So Glizzy's my first dog. I'm only now being exposed to more cats, but totally different animals. Like <laughs> their personalities and characters and traits, um, a lot is is very different from cat to dog most of the time. Yeah, I, I, cats sometimes get a bit of a bad rap, but uh, some cats yeah, just deserve it. Some, some cats are hissy and clawy and scratchy, and that's just how they are. And some cats, like Raisin, are lovely, and they snuggle up in your armpit and sleep next to you all night. And it's just nice to yeah. have some company when you're on the road. Uh, Ramya, enough about my love of varying animals. What's coming up on the show today at 2 p.m. Eastern Time? We're talking about the upcoming AMI This Week feature called A Seat at the Table with Toronto Bureau reporter Alex Smythe. Uh, also, we're talking about the Roy Holiday Field. Dave, this is Toronto's first mm-hmm. baseball diamond, and it uh, got this um, last month. Like, this is what it became last month. So we're talking about what make, goes into making a field like this with Jay's Care Executive Director Robert Witchell. Also, Michael Babcock is sharing tips for improving the experience of distinguished dialogue on TV. So we talk a lot about audio description and describe video, but uh, how about distinguishing dialogue? I personally have challenges with this sometimes, so I'm looking forward to what he has in store. Yeah, especially when you're talking about things like uh, movies with subtitles. Who's talking? Who's talking? If you're going to read me the subtitle through some form of described video, who's actually saying what they're saying? Mm-hmm, exactly. And uh, even with audio mixing, sometimes it can be an issue. You know, some characters sound more clear than others or the yeah. mix of audio description versus uh, character voices. So, yeah, 
Very interesting. It's one of the things I've noticed with a lot of the Netflix original movies. The sound mixing is just bad. Like, it's not good sound mixing. Or maybe it's designed for very surround sound setups as opposed to, as opposed to, like, just more general TV setups. And oftentimes the mixing is all over the place. So you'll be in this hardcore Mm -hmm. action scene and, like, the the volume is just pounding. And then you get to a speaking scene and, like, you cannot hear a word anybody's saying. Yeah, totally. I think those are best in movie theaters, but in our home theaters, it's not always great. <laughs> Plus, like if you listen using earphones versus actually uh, listening on loudspeakers, right? Totally yeah, different experience. Yeah, experiences. totally different experience yeah. through and through. Well, Ramya, sounds like a great way to get the week started. Have a good show, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good, Dave. That's Ramya Emwithin, the co host of Kelly and Company. That show comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI Audio. Coming up next, Jim Crisco stops by the show. We'll talk about a series of new inclusive playgrounds available in Calgary. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Lots of heat in southern Alberta, but not quite sure what Jim Crisco is dealing with in Edmonton as he stops by for the Western Regional Report. Jim is a content development specialist for AMI. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. 34 degrees in Lethbridge today, but how are you guys doing in Calgary? Uh, I'm in Edmonton. and Oh, uh, pardon me. I'm sorry. Sorry, Edmonton. My apologies, Jim. Sorry. I think I've already spoilers. said Edmonton once, and now I'm just saying, now I'm just saying all kinds of things. <laughs> no worries. Um, you know what? I think we're going to hit about mid twenties, uh, this week during the week. So that's perfect. That's yeah, sort of the nice, the nice, nice threshold you want to be in right there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially if you want to go play outside in some new inclusive parks that have opened around Calgary. What are some of these parks? What are some of the features that are going to be available for kids? Well, these are, are, uh, super cool, accessible parks and they've added a whole bunch of, uh, um, really inclusive features in it, including soft soft floors, braille signage. Um, they they want to have um, they they look at even um, the accessibility of the park itself. Uh, they they look at at um, washroom spaces. They look at at uh, you know rest spaces, um, that type of thing. A lot of interact active uh, stuff like uh, uh, boards with with pictures on them that uh, kids can interact with. It's just amazing stuff. And, you know, and this goes re- beyond just the ramps and and that type of thing. It's it's totally immersive for these, uh, uh, for inclusion. And, and it's it's great. And and I was thinking, Dave, I mean, I'm of a certain vintage and, and you're not quite there, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm vintaging. I'm vintaging quickly. <laughs> I remember uh, the, the playgrounds of when I was a kid, they would have those those stainless steel slides that on a day like today, you could literally cook an egg on. And, and that, that's <laughs> sort of, you know, it, it toughened you up. It sure did. Cause you were, you were sliding down this probably 200 degree uh, <laughs> <laughs> slide and hoping to get to the bottom without losing, uh, you know, too much skin. But yeah, when, um, I, when it, I was, when I was a boy, they'd moved more towards the plastic, but even then the plastic got pretty darn hot. Yeah, it sure did. So, um, so they've done a really good job of, of creating these inclusive play spaces that all children could enjoy, of course. Mm. What's the city saying about possibly expanding beyond these 10? 
what they're doing, uh, what what they'd like to do and what their goal is, is to have an inclusive play space within five kilometers of any Calgarian in the city. So they're looking at, at every quadrant and creating a play space that would be within five kilometers of so, uh, for someone to be able to get to it. So that's a pretty good goal. That's a way to, to, to make sure that you're covering the city. You're not loading up one end or the other or just creating one or two uh, to cover half a city. So it, it's really, uh, really kind of a great goal. And they're just hoping to get the funding forward from city council. Along those lines, where should people in the Calgary area go to find out more information about these particular 10 playgrounds? Uh, for this one, uh, you, if you, they go online to calgary.ca forward slash inclusive play. So calgary.ca forward, sa- forward slash inclusive play. Uh, we'll give them the um, all the details of where it is and, and how to get there. Very good. Let's jump over to Saskatchewan with an article from the Prince Alberta Daily Herald where a young disability advocate recently received the 2022 Terry Fox Humanitarian Award. Tell us about Quinn Smith Windsor and the work they did that and the, and the award they received. Sure. So Quinn, this is uh this is in the in the Prince Albert um uh paper. The, this is uh, uh she's a really very very um active and uh engaged advocate. Uh, for the disability community. Just amazing when you hear the work she's done. She's uh, a, a passionate, ac- uh, they call her a, a passionate advocate for accessibility. She serves as a youth accessibility leader in the community. Um, she's worked on water security projects, uh, which has empowered women and girls across the globe. Uh, during the pandemic, she organized and hosted Sew In Saturdays, so, uh, as in Sew Needle and Thread Sew, Sew In Saturdays, with volunteers across Saskatchewan to make and contrib- and distribute thousands of masks in Prince Albert. Um, so she clearly, clearly is very, very active in the community, uh, a great advocate, clearly a great choice for the award. And what does Quinn receive along with just the recognition of this award? Uh, each recipient of the award has an opportunity uh, to uh, receive scholarships valued at up to $28,000. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what what the the object of the the, um, the award from what uh, the article says is, is they want to help these, you know, exceptional advocates and representat- representatives from the disability community get through uh, at least their initial um, post-secondary education, maybe their first degree, uh, to help them start their, their, uh, you know, their life of, of further advocacy in their career. Wow. Many congratulations for winning that 2022 Terry Fox Humanitarian Award, Quinn Smith Windsor. Well done for being a fixture in your community. Jim, I hope this wound isn't too fresh as I explore it with you, but off the top of the hour, Jeff Ryman were talking and I were talking about Nathan Rourke, the uh, quarterback, rookie Canadian quarterback for the BC Lions, who just had his way with the Edmonton Elk over the weekend. Jim, I know you're actually a passionate CFL fan. It's not just sort of Bobo analysis like Jeff and I are talking about. Is this the best quarterback, the best quarterback prospect the Canadian Football League has seen since the Anthony Calvillo days? I uh, I would say yes, and I would say I uh, maybe the best Canadian. Um, uh, you know, it, he may turn out to be the best Canadian quarterback uh, that you know from at least recent memory or or, or 
semi-recent memory. He is uh, a phenomenal quarterback. Uh, I, I think he would probably, if they had a choice, the team had a choice, they would play Edmonton every week um, <laughs> because they almost set statistical records <laughs> during those the first couple games of the season. Um, but he's he's phenomenal to watch. And I heard your, your comment earlier that uh, when the, the league has great quarterbacks, uh, you have the most entertaining football and you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, he's, he's the leader. Actually, Edmonton has a, a young Canadian quarterback, uh, Ford, um, who's uh, maybe second or third on our, our depth chart right now, but, uh, he looks phenomenal as well. So it would be great to see a bunch of Canadian quarterbacks battling it out and then eventually getting lost to the NFL. Well, this is going to be one of the things that that's happening because the growth of the sport is occurring. We're seeing more Canadians making their way into American college football and making their way into the NFL football by, by happenstance. That means we're going to be getting more quality Canadian players coming back north of the border out of the American system. And Nathan Rourke is a perfect example of that after playing pretty well at Ohio for a couple of years. And now I think we're going to see more and more great Canadian players who might not quite make that NFL cut, but have been watching this, this game and this sport in the way it's played in Canada for a long, long time. Hey, Jim, thank you for this. Have yourself a great week. Have a great week, Dave. That's Jim Crisco, content development specialist for AMI, joining us from Edmonton, Alberta. That's all the time we have for the show today. Don't you worry. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.